Good afternoon, everybody. I've never said that on a Sunday before, but I can dig it. It's, uh, it's so cool to, um, to be here. Actually, when we first got here, <clears throat> I thought about going to your church. I did. I saw it on, uh, on Bardstown Road when you guys were over there, and I, I walked in, and um, nobody was there, so that's your fault. Uh, there was no one there. Andy wasn't there. He was having a day off, I guess, but... Um, by God's grace, uh, Andy and I became friends in other ways and um, got to meet through coffee. And so um, I'm just really happy to be here. I don't, this is the first time I've seen many of you, but um, I feel like I know a bit about your church because I know a bit about Andy and, and I care for you guys. And so I'm just, I'm deeply honored to be here and happy to share the word with you this morning. Would you guys open up your Bibles to the book of Matthew chapter 23, verses 13 and uh, 13, 14, and 15. And when we get into it, it's really just 13 and 14. Uh, your Bible's like mine, it's probably missing verse 14. It's not, it's not there, and that's okay. But yeah, open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 23, verses 13 and 15. And what I want to talk today, about today is um, not the, the most uplifting or not the most encouraging uh, sermon. What we're going to talk about today is, is self righteousness and how it can destroy our evangelism. Self-righteousness and how it can destroy all evangelism. So would you guys please stand with me as we read from the word of God this morning, Matthew chapter 23, verses 13 and 15. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single comfort, and when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Let's pray. Jesus, we stand before your words now, and we see your anger, and we see your frustration with these Pharisees. And God, we ask that you would humble our hearts, because if there's any way in which we are like them, we want you right now to root it out and to destroy it so that we're not obstacles to people entering the kingdom of heaven, but that we're helpers, that we're guides, and that we're living lives of salt and light in your world to bring eternal souls before their creator, creator in, in loving repentance. God, help us to be those people. Help me now to preach this word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> On July 25th, 1972, Associated Press journalist Gene Heller broke the news about an incredible injustice in American history. A 40-year experiment, 40-year experiment known as the Tuskegee Syphilis Study, had been going on since 1932 in the city of Tuskegee, Alabama. So beginning in 1932, 600 African-American men were put into this study on syphilis. Uh, a third of the 600 men who were in the studies were screened not to have syphilis, and so they were put off to the side. They weren't worried about them. Of the 400 who remained, they were testing a drug to see its effectiveness on syphilis. And the drug that they used was a mixture of arsenic, which I think is poison, not a doctor, and mercury, which I think is poison, but again, not, the, not a doctor. So that was, that was the medicine that they were using. And the other half, they did nothing. They wanted to test the treatment against the control, which was, was doing no treatment. 
Well, they were still in 1932, 10 years away from the discovery of penicillin. And so uh, there was no cure. Uh, of the 200 who, who got better, uh, of the 200 who got medicine, most of them got better. And of the 200, obviously nothing improved in their situation. They weren't receiving any medicine. Well, 14 years later, penicillin was invented. And the doctors had a choice to make. It seemed like an obvious one. We have penicillin. We have a guaranteed cure for syphilis. We could give it to these remaining 200 men who are still part of the study and heal them. And they decided to do nothing. They decided not to heal the 200 men who had syphilis. These men who had taken the Hippocratic Oath, which says, I will apply for the benefit of the sick, all measures which are required, decided not uh, not to apply a simple measure that would have healed these men. They continued to let them sit with syphilis for decades until 40 years later when the story was broken. It is a terrible thing when people who are called to give life and called to give health and called to give wellness instead bring sickness and disease and become harbingers of death. Our text today deals with precisely that issue. Not with physical health, but with with the highest stakes possible, eternal life, eternal death. Eternity with God in heaven or eternity in the torment of hell. And and our text today directs our attention to Pharisees and teachers of the law. Men who were in their day the epitome of righteousness, if you asked anybody. Men who who were eager to make converts. Men who were not giving medicine to the sick. Men who were doctors and failed to heal the people Around them, and we must do our best to learn from their errors because, like I said, the stakes could not be higher. It's not about physical wellness, it's about eternity. So, in this text today, what we're going to do is I already told you I'm not a doctor, but I'm going to use this medical analogy anyway. We're going to diagnose this disease, this disease that has plagued the church, this disease that plagued the Pharisees, this disease that's kind of always attached itself to the people of God. It's, it's a disease, it's, it's a parasite, it's a virus that is sneaky, that is quiet, but if not addressed, will destroy our gospel witness. It will destroy our evangelism. And this disease, this, this plague, this virus, which has been attached to the church and attached to the people of God for so very long, this silent killer of evangelism is pride. It's pride and self-righteousness. And today what we're going to do is first learn how to diagnose when someone is infected with this. Secondly, we're going to see how we can, um, we can see its effects its effects among other people. And then thirdly, we're going to find the cure. I promise we'll get to the good news eventually. But first, let's diagnose. Matthew 23, 13. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. You hypocrites, you shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Now, when you and I look at someone, it's very difficult for us to tell if the person we're looking at is 
overwhelmed by the disease of self-righteousness. But it's not hard for Jesus to tell. So the Israelites would look at the Pharisees and they wouldn't see anything wrong. But when Jesus looks at the Pharisees, he says instead, verse 13, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. And here's the diagnosis. He knows exactly what's going on. You hypocrites, you hypocrites. Jesus knows them much better than we do. So we can look to Jesus to kind of give us cues on, on diagnosing this. So they're hypocrites. And, and this is not hypocrites in the, in the general sense of the word. Raise your hand if you're a hypocrite. You're all hypocrites. Good job. We got an interactive audience going today. That's good. So, so yeah, we're all hypocrites. Every single one of us. We all have kids or we've have, we're, we were kids at one point and we know what it is to like tell somebody to do something that you don't do. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about a much more sinister sort of hypocrisy, which is to command others to obey God while intentionally disobeying God in private. Uh, it, it is a duplicitous lifestyle in the most overt and, and, and obvious ways, and, and that's what Jesus is getting at here. They outwardly live obedience to the law, but in private, there's no obedience. Jesus will later call these men whitewashed tombs. Outward they look clean, inwardly they are death. So the first piece in diagnosing someone is they're going to have hypocrisy, okay? We all have some, but this is kind of that next level, hypocrisy. Here's number two, they're going to put obstacles between the lost and God. So on the road to God, these people are not only going to be hypocrites, they're also going to be putting obstacles there. He says, you shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, now, this is actually harder to spot. You would think it's easier to spot than hypocrisy, but it's, but it's actually harder. Jesus has actually unpacked this idea already. And so if you, if you got your Bibles open, just hop up a couple of verses to verse four. This is how Jesus describes the Pharisees. He says, they tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. What it looks like, when we are putting obstacles before people on the way to the kingdom of heaven rather than helping them, is it looks something like this. Somebody comes to church and their life's a mess and they, they wanna know how they can be forgiven of their sin. And we say to them, oh, you, would you like to be a Christian? Well, then you'd better stop drinking and stop smoking and stop dancing and going to movies and working on Sundays and gambling and looking lustfully at women or looking lustfully at men, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And before we ever tell them about grace and the good news of Christ and that he's died for them, we're telling them, stop doing what you're doing. Stop doing what you're doing. Stop doing what you're doing. When we do that, we are putting obstacles in the way of people trying to get to the kingdom of heaven. We are telling them subtly, you must first fix yourself before God will be willing to fix you. It's subtle. It's so subtle. It can, it can show up when we just kind of throw a cold shoulder to someone who doesn't live in a way that we approve of. It's subtle, but gosh, it happens all the time. So the first is hypocrisy. The second is this obstacle to the kingdom of heaven. And then the, here's the third piece. They're, they're actually going to hate the people who are truly following God. That's a little bit more obvious. That's a little bit easier to spot. He says, you yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. So there are a couple ways that we can spot this behavior in the Pharisees, okay? 
There's a couple ways that we can see this, where not only do they not want to go into the kingdom of heaven, they also stop those from who are, who are trying to get in. They, they hate the true followers of God. They're opposed to people who are truly following God. And here's the first way we can see it. Humble versus prideful religion, okay? Humble versus prideful religion. The Pharisees looked good for what reason? The praise of men. That's what motivated their righteousness. That's what motivated their obedience to the law. The praise of men. Look at verse 5, again, in Matthew chapter 23. He's already diagnosed the Pharisees in verses 1 through 12, so we're going to kind of reference that. But in verse 5, he says, everything they do, everything they do is for people to see. So they don't obey out of love for God. They obey out of love for themselves and and for puffing up their own name. They're always trying to be more excellent in the eyes of others, and they're using obedience to God's word to achieve that. That is religion based on pride. It is the exact opposite of what Jesus says at the beginning of the Beatitudes, right? Blessed are the meek and the humble and the poor in spirit. Those are the people who are going to see God. Those are the people who are going to be saved. That's how you get true religion is by recognizing your own poverty and coming to God to fix that. So that's the first way that that there's a difference, and the Pharisees are going to hate this humble religion. The Pharisees are going to hate people who live this way. Here's number two, righteousness by faith rather than righteousness by works. That's the second one. So we could could see this in the, the answer to the question, how does a sinful man become a righteous man? All right, so think about that in your head right now. How does a sinful man become a righteous man? A Pharisee might be quick to answer through obedience to the law. A Pharisee might be quick to answer through obedience to the law. If you obey Moses' law, a sinful man can be a righteous man. However, Scripture is very clear about man's righteousness. It is worthless because it is tainted and marred by sin. Scripture sets out the pattern for how men will become righteous. Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed the Lord and credited it to him as righteousness. Righteousness comes not by actions, but by faith. By faith. Pharisees don't like that because you don't look good for believing in Jesus You look good for obeying Jesus. And they hate people who preach that we're saved by grace through faith and not by works. That will mock righteousness by faith and glorify righteousness by deeds. And here's the last piece, and it's it's the most important piece. They hate not only the followers of Jesus, they hate Jesus himself, right? The answer is, to the question, who is Jesus? If you ask Peter, he's going to say the Messiah. If you ask the Pharisees, they're going to say the son of Satan. They hate the Messiah. They hate their God. They hate Jesus. Jesus was, could you imagine what it would have been like to be in first century Palestine? Jesus out there healing the blind, touching lepers, making seven loaves into thousands of loaves, calming storms, just constantly showing that he is 
God the Son, the Messiah, and to look at all of that and, and, and to know all of the Old Testament prophecies which talk about the new covenant and the one who bringing in the, the one who's going to bring in the new covenant is going to be able to perform all of these wondrous deeds and then to reject the Messiah because he doesn't glorify your outward righteousness. Instead, he condemns it. And he says, like, learn from this child. Learn from this Roman. Learn from, learn from this Syrophoenician woman. Learn from this Samaritan woman. Learn from all of these people who you look down on because they've got it and you don't. And, and they hate him for it. John, Jesus says in John chapter 5, 39, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Not only do they fail to believe, not only do they fail to enter the kingdom of God, they hate those who are on that path. They try to stop them. There's some modern examples that we could correlate the Pharisees to. Number one would be hypocrites, right? That's pretty easy. Hypocrites are in every generation. We just said that we're all hypocrites in this room. And they're not easy to spot at the beginning. I'm just here today. I can convince you guys that I'm holy for today. But if you go to my church, they'll tell you the truth because I've been there for five years. Time tends to expose us, doesn't it? There's many people who are perfectly willing to, to step into a pulpit like this and to preach to a congregation about Christ and tell you guys, be like Jesus and then leave this place and, and cheat on their spouses and give in to their addictions to alcohol or pornography or, or gambling and the like. They will speak about freedom in Jesus, but know nothing about it. They will tell you to walk with God, but don't know the first thing about walking by the Spirit. They will tell you to seek God and know nothing of him themselves. Do you guys know preachers like that? I hope Andy's not that way. I don't think he's that way. But I see that in me. If I'm not careful, that hypocrisy, that I'll tell my people to read their, read their Bibles and pray. And I'll think about the last week and how many times did I read my Bible and how many times did I pray. So that, that hypocrisy is always close behind, but it gets worse. There's, there's worse and worse levels to it. Number two, they're gonna put obstacles on the road to salvation. So most often today, this looks like distractions. Churches that are really distractions from the kingdom of heaven. They will take a church down a path of outreach and community engagement that is void of the gospel. You guys hear what I'm saying? It's possible to be in church that's engaged with your community and active and present, but not to be bringing the message of Christ. It's, it's possible to make church exciting and attractive to the outside world, to make big, large, impressive buildings, and, and to distract everybody from the gospel. Instead, we focus our attention on kids, on spouses, on money, on education, on morality, on your best life now, and we don't talk about the kingdom of heaven, the glory of Christ, the evils of sin, or the brokenness of our own souls. Churches which are distractions are obstacles to the kingdom of heaven. They will preach the sort of religion that puffs themselves up, that gets applause from the world, but means nothing to God. I I know that in, in Southern Baptist history that our seminary kind of went down this liberal path, not kind of, super went down this liberal path for a while. And there's a lot of other churches that are on that path. They're very proud that they have rejected 
the inerrancy and the authority of scriptures and that they live in a different way. They're very proud of their openly gay pastors. They're very proud of saying that the Bible needs to be brought up to the 21st century. They're very proud of being open and accepting and loving. And they're, they condemn people who, who are proud of being identified by Christ. They see themselves as the champions of the minorities in the world, and they see Jesus as the, the archetype of that. And they would say that we who say that if you disobey God and you never come to faith, that you're going to go to hell, if you've, if you've never repented of your sin, that there's going to be an expectation of judgment, they would say that we're evil, that we're hate-filled, that we don't resemble the real Jesus. Christ has warned us of such people. I want to warn you, brothers and sisters, of such people. They do not want to glorify God. They want to glorify themselves, have no fellowship with them. So that's how we can kind of diagnose this in the world. Let's see now what the disease does. Look at verse 15. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single comfort, and when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Notice that first, this silent killer of evangelism will not kill your evangelistic zeal. You'll still be motivated to go out and tell people stuff. It may not be the gospel, but you'll be motivated to tell people stuff. My wife and I often have this conversation. She's part of the the Facebook group for seminary wives and for Southern Baptist pastors' wives. And if you look on that group, there's, it's interesting what people get evangelistic about. Like it could be wax melts, it could be homeopathic remedies, it could be breastfeeding tips, but there's like certain people who are like never talking about Jesus and always talking about whatever goods they're selling. It's interesting what people get evangelistic about. So I'm going to use an illustration here, maybe. Are, are there any vegans in here? Show of hands. A couple. Okay. All right. Let me first say no offense at all. I, I don't mean to. I, I think it's awesome to live a, a cruelty-free diet. I think it's fantastic. But I've noticed something about vegans, and this is true of any diet. So if you're keto or if you're paleo or if you're whatever, I don't care. Like, this is still true for you too. So I'm trying to offend everybody who's on a diet right now. Um, if, if I go to, if I go to, do you guys ever been to the Eagle? I love the Eagle. It's fried chicken, sorry. But if I go to the Eagle and I, and I eat fried chicken, nobody says to me, good job. <laughs> nobody says to me, I'm so proud of you. But, but if you're vegan and you post a picture on Instagram of your vegan meal, people will comment and say, good job. There's, there's some moral capital in eating that kind of diet. And same thing if you're paleo, right? If you're a paleo guy and you just eat like a giant bowl of nuts, all of your paleo friends are gonna be like, good job, man, you're awesome. And it's just interesting that, that because no one's ever done that to me. Like I've never gotten done with a bowl of spaghetti and someone been like, good job, Joe, excellent choice. It's when you're on this diet that people will praise you. And I'm not saying that everybody who's on a diet is looking for praise, but I am saying it feels pretty good. It feels pretty good to get praise. You know, we can sometimes be evangelistic about something because being evangelistic about it gets us praise from the community that we care about. We can be evangelistic in church because other people in church are gonna say, good job and not 
because we care about the glory of God and not because we care about the souls we are preaching to. The church is in the same conundrum, guys. We have to be very careful about why we do what we do because if we're doing evangelism for the glory of others, we're not gonna be leading people into the kingdom of heaven. We will be leading people away from the kingdom of heaven. It's important to make a distinction at this, at this point between the way that this manifests itself. So, so there are some preachers, some teachers who are going to preach a completely false gospel, and there's other preachers and teachers who are, going to, uh, who are going to preach the gospel for bad reasons, and both of them are to be condemned, right? So someone who is preaching a, a false gospel, typically what it looks like, is part of the gospel and not the whole thing. Rarely does someone come out and say, Jesus is not God but I want you to believe in me instead, right? Mostly what people will say is something to the effect of love, 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 love. God loves you. And never talk about your sin before a holy God. You can go to a church each week and feel really uplifted and encouraged without ever being challenged about your sin. And that will not lead to the kingdom of heaven. But if you preach that message, people will like you. People will really, really like you. If you're preaching for people to like you, they're going to come. They're going to be uplifted. They're going to enjoy that. And on the other side, you have people who are preaching the right message for the wrong reason. Paul condemns these sorts of people. What they do is they're using the gospel, again, to look good in front of other people. They're using the Bible's words because it gets them more, right? Uh, so you, you, could, you could imagine that like a, a televangelist, if, if he got up there, and he wants money, and he said the same message, but not using the Bible's words, would probably get far less money. If you've ever seen the book of Eli, I'm not suggesting that you go watch the movie, but just to kind of give you the plot, there's a villain in there who wants the Bible because he knows that if he can use the Bible's words, that he will be able to manipulate people. And, and that's the idea behind the second group of false prophets. It's, it's a way to get more power for, for them. So, so my encouragement to you is to learn Learn the, 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 these two groups of people, people who preach a one-sided gospel or people who are using gospel-sounding words to get more money and more glory and more power. They don't pass the smell test. My wife, the other day, uh, pulled out some lunch meat and we looked at it and it looked good and then we smelt it and it smelt bad. So I didn't eat it. That's the smell test. And we need to be able to do the same thing when we're hearing people preach. If it doesn't pass the smell test, if there's something seems off, then, then get away from, from, what's, what, from what you're hearing. Because if you keep eating that diet of bad lunch meat, bad things happen. Jesus says, you travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you've succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. People preach to make themselves feel good. Feels good to be a Jew, to cross the ocean, to get to Gentile territory, and convince one of these men to become a proselyte to Christianity. Philippian, or Paul says this in Philippians 1, 15 through 18, it is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But, but Paul's attitude is amazing. He says, but what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. That's, that's his heart. As long as Christ's words are actually being preached, that's awesome. God 
can use that. But the trap that I fear, brothers and sisters, is that when we continue to preach the gospel for the wrong reasons, eventually the gospel itself will suffer and evangelism will die. If you were to get a a room of pastors together, fill this place with all the pastors that you could find in the city of Louisville, and then inject us all with truth serum so that we can't lie, and we say, who here wants to have a bigger church because they want the glory that comes from pastoring a bigger church? you would be alarmed by the number of hands that would go up. Depending on the day, my hand would go up too. There's something about being able to say that your church is large that makes a pastor feel good. And if, you're, if that's your goal for preaching, then you will, you, will certainly, you will certainly begin to compromise on the gospel in order to get people in the seats. The, preach the message that gets the most, most claps, but not the message that gets all of the glory for God. So going through all of this, what does this have to do with our evangelism? How does this kill our our evangelism? When we live this way, when we behave this way, we are drinking from a constant stream of poison and it will eventually kill us and our listeners. Do you guys know of the company DuPont? DuPont, they're a chemical company. There's a city, I believe in one of the Carolinas, and they've been dumping this chemical into the water of that city called PFOA. Um, and, and the people of that city by the thousands are sick with cancer. And, and uh, they did it because in 1976, the government passed this act called the Toxic Substances Control Act. And what that act did said, basically, if there's a company using a chemical, it's safe to use. And they can continue to use it until somebody else can prove that it's harmful. So the EPA, the the government agency, which is designed to uh, protect you and I, ended up working against you and I in favor of companies like DuPont. In 2016, thankfully, there was reforms, but not before hundreds and hundreds of people got cancer, got very sick, and, and some of them died. The sickness that the EPA had, that bad pastors have, that, that we have, is pride self-righteousness. It's to come here and to use this for our own purposes and for our own glory and to look good between these other people who you care about here on Sunday afternoon. You know what the silent killer is in health? It's high blood pressure. Anybody got high blood pressure in here? No, maybe one of you. That's, that's the silent killer. Uh, it, heart failure. The signs are so common that you and I have all experienced them. Uh, Many people don't realize that it's a problem until the day that their heart stops working and they they keel over and die. And that it's so similar with pride and self-righteousness in the church. It will kill our evangelism just as silently. We know that it's taken over a believer when they preach for selfish ambition, when they when they tell the gospel to make themselves look good, or, and this is, I think, really the more temptation in our time, when they stop preaching the gospel out of selfish ambition. If you have a job in a secular context, it's way easier to not preach the gospel if you want to be popular, if you want money, if you want wealth, if you want promotions, those things. The gospel's an obstacle, so they get rid of that in order to pursue that. Or or we preach uh, to get people to say, you know, if, 
if, if you want people to, to applaud you, then you won't preach the gospel to the lost because they're going to spit in your face. You'll preach the gospel to the saved because they'll say amen, right? When we, when we preach the gospel in here, people say amen. And if all of your gospel witness happens in church, then pride might be silently killing your evangelism. It's when we live in hypocrisy. It's when we compromise on the gospel. It's when we do missions for our own glory rather than for God. And so I've laid out the problem as best I can. What is the cure? How do we fix this? Well, the cure is the gospel. The cure actually is the gospel. The cure is actually the real message that we need. And just so we can be clear, let me briefly go over it. God made this universe and everything in it. And and the most incredible part of his creation is nothing less than us. The most incredible part of God's creation is humanity itself, uniquely made in the image of God. And God planted us in a garden that was in many ways this temple for us and the Lord to live together in harmony. But man and Adam sinned and rebelled against God. And we fell into brokenness and depravity. So now, though we are image bearers, we are broken image bearers. We love, but we love the wrong things. We seek glory, but not God's glory. We worship created things rather than the creator. We are inventive and creative, but often in ways that lead to more sin. We rule and reign as God commanded us, but we do so in a domineering way that destroys those beneath us rather than building them up. And the punishment For this sin is eternal death. But God still loves his broken image bearers. And he loves them so much so that he eternally had a plan to save us. And in a way that is perfectly merciful, yet perfectly just, he sends his son down to come and take on the flesh, to live in all the ways that we live, and all of the weakness of our flesh, but he does so without sin. And at the end of his perfect life, rather than getting a high five and a congratulation and and an award of righteousness, he gets betrayed and killed and crucified to make a way for us to have our sin and our punishment transferred to him and his righteousness imputed to us. He dies for our sin, taking our punishment, transferring to us his perfections and his righteousness. Now, this doesn't happen to anybody without faith. Faith in the promises of God. And all we have to do is believe that God is who he says he is and that Jesus really is his son. We place our faith in them and we place our faith in his promise that if we believe in him and we confess our sin and we repent that our guilt will be transferred to Christ and Christ's righteousness will be transferred to us. And this process isn't over yet. Christ was then raised from the dead, ascended to heaven, sits at the right hand of God, continuing to intercede on our behalf and he will do so until the day he returns and raptures up his bride and unites us to him forever. Ever, He is in the process of making us holy one day at a time, and when he returns, we will fully be made like him. This is the gospel. And it has far-reaching effects. When applied to the family, the family flourishes. When applied to business, they become places more about God than about making money. When applied to finances, stability and generosity ensue. 
When applied to our culture, morality shifts. Societies become better places to live. This is the gospel. The gospel, brothers and sisters, is the cure for pride and selfishness. And it does this in a couple ways. Number one, it fixes our message. When we preach this, we're preaching the right thing. And I've been applying this to preaching because that's not just the role of pastors. We are all called to preach the gospel. Maybe not from a pulpit, but certainly to the people around us with words, not just actions. When we preach that message, we're in the clear. Number two, it destroys our pride. Salvation is utterly a gift from God. It is completely a grace that we cannot win for ourselves. There's nothing to boast in. What are you going to boast in? That you deserve to die on a cross and suffer an eternity in hell? But, but God saved you? That, that's, that's the boast. Your boast is in, is in Jesus because you know that there's nothing that you could do to save yourself. And, and if you're living there in that what we call gospel-centered life, Pride is constantly uprooted and constantly destroyed because the cross is constantly insulting you and saying, you belong up here, but Jesus stood in your place. Number three, it provides real righteousness. Self-righteousness is our broken attempt to be like God. But God provides his perfect righteousness to us. And you know what God's righteousness does? It transforms you. God's righteousness is transformative. If you're trying to be like him without his righteousness, it will not work. But the moment that God makes you righteous, your heart begins to actually be transformed. You actually get conformed to the image of God. We no longer need to impress the world, by the way, with our outward righteousness because God has given us the real thing. So if your goal to being righteous is to look good to the people around you, then what God gives you is the real thing. Look at the person next to you. Look at them. Say, I don't care what you think about me. Tell them, tell them, seriously, tell them, I don't care what you think about me. Do it, do it, y'all aren't doing it. Say, I don't care what you think about me because I have the righteousness of Christ. There's nothing that you could say about me when I have the righteousness of Christ that is ever gonna make me feel bad. What can you say about me? I, I have the righteousness of Christ. That simply cannot be beat. It makes us willing and eager to spread the gospel. We understand what's at stake. We understand that when we go back out into the world, we are surrounded by eternal souls who are largely on their way to hell. And the stakes could not be higher. It reminds us that we are doctors called to do good in the world by giving them the gospel and to withhold that medicine from people who are dying is unthinkable. Christ has loved us and sacrificed his life to unite us to God so we will in turn love the lost and sacrifice our lives to bring them to Christ. And lastly, it glorifies God. It gets us away from building up our own platform and instead do all we can to bring attention to the hero, to the savior, to the lover of our souls, to God himself. Brothers and sisters, you find that your motivation 
for being here at church and for trying to obey God's commands are less than pure. Plant yourself at the feet of the cross. Spend time meditating on the gospel until your heart and your mind are renewed and your love for God enlarged. And then preach a gospel that saves. Let's pray. Lord God, we just ask that as we as we come before you now, as we think about what Christ has done to save us, as we think about the sacrifice that you made to bring us to you, God, I pray that you would bring our hearts low. I pray that you would produce in us humility. I pray that you would, you would help us to pursue the kind of righteousness that only you can provide. God, we don't want pride and, and self-righteousness to, to muddy this pot of worship that we're trying to bring before you now. So we ask that you would root it out, Lord, that you would purify our hearts and purify our motives so that all the glory and all the praise and all the honor would be to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.